Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Today we're going to continue on in our Advent series, and today we are looking at, uh, or we will be in the book of Exodus. So please turn to Exodus chapter 33. So Exodus is in the Old Testament. It's toward the beginning of your Bible. It's the second book in. And our theme for Christmas this year, what we're focusing on in these four weeks is Emmanuel. And what Emmanuel means and what that name means is God with us. And so we're looking at what it, what it is for God to be with us. And today, last week we saw through Ronnie's sermon that we can have faith that God is always with us and that he is faithful to his promise and all of his promises and he will be faithful to always be with us. Today we are going to look at how God being with us and God's presence gives us peace and gives us rest. So the main point today is that God's presence gives us peace and rest. So God's presence gives us peace and rest. The book of Exodus, just to give you a background here, is I believe and others believe it is, it is one of the most clearest and most beautiful pictures of the gospel that we have in our entire Bible. So the book as a whole is a book of redemption, it's a book of rescue, but it's a book that shows and articulates the gospel so well. The gospel means good news, and the good news is not that we save ourselves, but save and reconciles us back to God. And the book of Exodus displays this so well, because religion says this, do good, do the law, do it well, and then you will be loved or accepted. The gospel says it's done, Christ finished everything, and now we obey the law out of that. And what we see in the book of Exodus is actually this, is there's this group of people called the Israelites, and they are enslaved by the Egyptians. So they are held in bondage, and they are unable to rescue themselves. They are unable to set themselves free. And so what happens is this, is they cry out to God, and what does God do? God doesn't come in and say, hey, here's the Ten Commandments. God does not come in and say, hey, here's the law. Obey this and obey this really well, and if you do, I will set you free. That's not how the book goes. Actually, what happens is God comes in and he completely rescues them. He redeems them. He sets them free. He brings them out of Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea and then sets them free. He brings them solely into freedom by his grace. And then after that, what does he do? Then he gives them the law. We can't get this backwards. God doesn't say, here's the law, obey, then I will set you free. God sets them free. Then after he sets them free, gives them full freedom. He says, here's the law. As a response to freedom, then you obey. And we see that. That is a clear picture of the gospel in the book of Exodus. And so it tells this story of redemption, of rescue that God provides. Later on, as we dive in, in, in or as you dive into the book of Exodus, if you want in your own time, what you will see is that the people... Uh, constantly love to go wayward and, 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 and love to, uh, to make and create their own gods. What we will also see is this, is that idolatry and sin doesn't lead to peace and rest, but actually God's presence is the one and only thing in this world that will actually give true peace and true rest. You see, God wanted to dwell with his people, and so what's going on in Exodus is he's been telling them, hey, I want to, I want to be in the center of your guys' lives, and so I want you to build a tabernacle, and then I will dwell inside of that tabernacle. That way I can be with you guys at all times, that I can be in the center of your lives. 
And so he's given them plans to do it. But instead, they get tired, they get restless, they don't like waiting, and so they build a, build a god themselves. They take off their jewelry and they melt it down and they make themselves a cute little baby calf and say, this is our God, we will worship it. So this is actually where we pick up today is this event just happened where they uh, created this God, this little baby golden calf, and then we, we pick up. And actually, if you look at uh, chapter 32, verse 35, we can see this just happened. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. So that's where we're at in Exodus. So we're diving in after this story. God sets them free. He delivers them. He gives them the law, which is good. The, the law of God is good. It's not a bad law. It is a good law. It's not oppressive. It is good about how life is best lived. God gives that. Then he says, I want to dwell with you, so build this tabernacle. And then they fall into idolatry. And idolatry is simply this. Making anything into a God thing and worshiping it. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It could be work career, success, family, anything like that, but you make it into a God thing and you worship it. That's what they do, and that's where we pick up in Exodus 33. But what I want to say is this, is that our culture is not really good at resting. We're just not. I am not good at resting. And I want us to walk away today understanding what true peace and what true rest is and that God's presence gives this. I know that we are exhausted. I know that many in this room are exhausted. That many in this room are worn out that there's chaos. I talked to uh, one young lady who goes to church here this morning and she lost her mother a, a week ago. I know there's people going through a lot and it doesn't necessarily seem like there's peace and there's rest. But I believe that God's presence is the very thing that gives us peace and rest. And here's the thing. As Mark was saying through lighting the second candle today, it's peace isn't just the removal of conflict. In our minds, that's how we sometimes define peace. Peace is the absence of war, but in the Bible, it's something much bigger than that. Peace is not just the removal of something, it's actually the adding of something. So it's not just taking conflict away, it's learning that in the midst of conflict, uh, conflict and, and of your worst circumstances, you can have peace. Because peace is connected to a person, that person is Jesus Christ. We see this actually in Psalm 23. If you look at Psalm 23, verse 5, it says this, so this is David, and a lot of scholars believe this is a psalm that David wrote toward the end of his life. But in this uh, psalm titled, The Good Shepherd, David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, not absent of my enemies, in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows, in the midst of a chaotic situation. In the midst of enemies, in the midst of being at war, David says, I dine at a table with the Lord God Almighty, and he prepares a table for me, and he anoints my head with oil. There's peace. There's also rest. If you look at the beginning of the psalm, oftentimes when we think of rest, we think, I'm just going to stop everything, cease from doing everything, which actually the word for Sabbath means to stop and to cease but oftentimes we think, I'm going to rest. I'm going to do it. But Psalm 23 again shows us it's actually the Lord that gives us rest. Psalm 23, 1 through 3 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Focus on the language starting in verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. It is, it is God. It is the good shepherd. It is his presence that actually gives us rest. 
Again, our culture is not good at rest. We're not good at peace. And what we do is we confuse peace and rest to just be removed from all conflict, from every chaotic situation going on in our lives. But that's not the way life works, and that's not the promise of God. The promise of God is to give us peace and rest in the midst of conflict and in the midst of our circumstances that we're going through. For if, if, if you're here and you have children, what you think of peace is, is silence in the car. And honestly, rest in this season of Christmas is really difficult for us because we get consumed by gifts and being at this party and being at this party and what are we going to tell our family members that want us to be here and want us to be here and we have to divide our time and so it's anything oftentimes but peaceful and restful. And in the midst of chaos, I was taking my... Uh, children home from gymnastics and we're trying to get in the Christmas spirit and so I was listening to Christmas music because that's what you do when your kids are screaming in the backseat driving you crazy is you turn the music up louder than they are and I, I was just it was you, the, the parents in the room can say amen but I was just at my like you're at that point where you're like if, 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 if I get one more question I'm gonna snap and uh and then I try to get over into the other lane, and I accidentally almost cut someone off, and so I get back in my lane, and I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And this guy just, all of a sudden, he just cuts me off and then slams on his brakes. So I almost rear in, and then my daughter's like, you almost rear in, like, got us in an accident. <laughs> and I found my family, they were just rear-ended on the way home from church last Sunday. So it's been anything but peaceful or restful. And I got home, and I, and, and I told my wife, First, I just flew by this guy as soon as I got the opportunity. I've, I've grown up a lot since last Wednesday, but I, this is the first time I've ever, I, I came home and I, and I told my wife, I was like, this is the first time I think since ever being a follower of Jesus that I contemplated getting out of my car. I was like, this guy has no clue how unstable I am right now from everything going on because it's not peaceful and it's not restful and it's not what I had imagined it to look like. And in a lot of ways, that's been this Christmas season. And I think the one thing that can slow us down and give us peace and give us rest, truly believe this, is only Emmanuel, God with us. This sermon today is going to be contemplative in nature, so it's going to be a little bit awkward and weird for some of you guys because we're going to just take some moments to pause and reflect on what we're preaching through and what we're covering. And so if you're a new Christian or a non-Christian, you're visiting with us today, I'll uh, kind of help guide that time for you as well. We want GCC to always be a place for new Christians or non-Christians to come and investigate Christianity and hear what the gospel is. And, and if you've been following Jesus for a while, then this will be kind of a, a time for you to stop, slow down, and reflect on the truths of Scripture and what it is for Emmanuel to be with us. We're not going to read through the whole passage because it's a large chunk, so I'm going to read and preach as we go. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are with us, that you are Emmanuel. I pray that the word, the name Emmanuel, would even slow us down to know that God is present with us at all times, that, Father, you are faithful that you are good, that you don't change, that you are stable. You are the one thing in our life, Father, that does not change. We ask that you calm us, slow us down in the midst of chaos, in the midst of loss, in the midst of uh, 
Father, this crazy season for school and for finals, for the, for the professors, for the students, for everything going on in our lives, I pray that your presence would give us peace and give us rest, and you would minister to us this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read chapter 33, 1 through 6. Remember where we pick, uh, pick up in this book. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. What's going on? God says this, this is where I stop and this is where you go on but without me. This isn't small news. This is disastrous news for Israel. This isn't like uh, just a bummer. This is the end for Israel because God says, all right, I'm done. I'm done. You go on. And in fact, in chapter 23 and 32, we actually uh, see God referring to the Israelites as my people. And, and, and I will send my angel. But here he's saying uh, the people and an angel. So there's this disconnect that's starting to happen inside here. And, and that we can see it. And he's telling them, like, I'm not going to go with you. Why? Because you are a stiff-necked people. Meaning this, what that meant in that time is that if, a, if an animal was sti- a stiff-necked or an ox was, you couldn't steer that animal. When it got to the end of the row that it was plowing or you wanted to go a certain direction, you couldn't steer it because its neck was stiff and it was just held up tight. It's like trying to teach an old dog new tricks, anything like that. It's just really hard to move stiff-necked people. And he's saying, you're just stubborn. You're stiff-necked. You're set on going your way and you don't want to be turned any other way or any other direction. And I'm not going to go with you. This is not God being impulsive or reactive. Like sometimes if we've grown up with earthly fathers that were impulsive in their anger or reactive in their anger, this is actually God being very loving because He's saying if I go with you and you're like this, then I will consume you. And this is what this means. The holiness of God would consume them. The only way I can try to explain this is if someone says, hey, uh, let's get closer to the sun. I would like to drop you off real close to the sun so you can have a closer experience to the physical sun that gives light to this world. You can't do that because it would burn you up. We can't even stare at it for a long time because it would blind us. God the Creator created the sun. He is far more holy, far more glorious, and so His presence would consume anything that is unholy. It's not like walking in your mom's house with dirty shoes. It is like taking a completely unclean person and trying to run to the presence of a holy God. It would consume you. So he says, I'm not going. What is their response? We see here, they strip off their ornaments. That's their jewelry. They start taking off their jewelry. They're like, we don't want to wear this. What is that akin to? 
how would we understand that? It's this, is that this was a true act of contrition, a true act of repentance. They were actually repentant in heart. And the very first thing that we can do is this, is we can start to recognize that it's never where is God at, but it's where has our sin led us. Because in the garden, we see when Adam and Eve sinned, he, he said, where are you? Because God is always with us. God is faithful. God is present. But our sin is something that we are now taking and placing at the center of our lives and, and, and trying to push God away. And so repentance is the first thing that we can do because it's our acknowledgement of God, something else is taking the center place of my life instead of your presence and I want you back. Repentance is not penance. It is not us working to do something to gain favor, love, and acceptance by God. It is us turning from our sin and from what we're putting at the center and saying, Lord, I want you there. Let me say this. Idolatry, which we define as uh, worshiping anything other than God, let me say this. It gets exhausting. And oftentimes the reason why we don't have peace or rest is because worshiping idols exhaust us. Imagine this. They create this golden calf and they worship it, but then it turns out to be puny and not the God that, that they thought it would be. And it can't satisfy them in the way they thought it could satisfy them. And so what happens? Well, this... This God that they created, well, it gets torn apart, it gets uh, taken, it, 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 it falls apart. Whatever happens to it, then what do you have to do again? You have to recreate another idol. And so the, our, our idols that we place our trust and our hope in outside of God that can't withstand the hope that we need, that can't satisfy us, we will continue to build these things. Whether it's comfort, whether if it's control, whether if it's people's approval, whether if it's a person or, or um, just something monetary, when we put our hope in it and it doesn't satisfy and, and, and we find out that it's puny and it gets destroyed, then we have to build something else. And then we're constantly building and recreating new idols that will never satisfy us and it gets exhausting. This is where they found themselves. One way to, to, to identify idolatry, Philip Graham Riken says this, that, that the way we view money and spend money is like an echocardiogram for our spiritual lives. In other words, what he's saying is that they used their money at one point to build a golden calf. Now they're saying, we don't want any of this, God. We just want you. Strip us of all this. Strip us of whatever it is. Money can be an idol. Comfort can be an idol. Approval can be an idol. Control can be an idol. Whatever it is, where we're going to start this morning is we're just going to take a moment and say this that God will recognize that there are things in my life that I have done. There are things that I've placed at the center other than you. And the first thing that I want to start by doing this morning is stripping myself of those things, repenting from those things, acknowledging that, that I've done something else, turning from that and then turning to you. Martin Luther said that all of the Christian life, not just when you become saved, but all of the Christian life is repentance and faith. When Jesus came in Mark's Gospel, verse 15, what, what, what is the message? Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance is where we start. Stripping ourselves of the things that, that, that we've put at the center of our lives instead of the presence of Emmanuel. So we're going to take a couple minutes today and we're just going to do that. It might be weird for you. It might be something that you're not used to doing. But I don't want this to be another time where we come in here and we rush and we go through service and we do everything really fast and we check the box and then we leave from here. I want us to slow down now. Take some moments. Maybe you had a spout with your spouse on the way here this morning. Maybe it's just been a chaotic morning. Maybe it's been chaotic. Maybe you were regretful of the things that you've said, gossip, whatever it is. Take a moment and acknowledge your sin before a holy God 
and ask God to take the place in your life of being at the center. If you're not a Christian, I would say this. We're just going to do this for about two minutes. Is ask God to reveal himself to you. If, 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 if God is real, then ask God, which obviously we believe that he is, ask God to reveal himself to you. But I would say this, that I don't believe that you can have peace until you find your peace in the king of peace. Those aren't my words. It's taken from someone else. And so I would say the way that starts is recognizing that we are broken sinners, all of us, myself included. And what we all need is the grace of God and the saving work of Jesus Christ. So we are just going to take two minutes right now. It'll be silent. It'll be quiet. And we're just going to have a time to just confess. Father, we recognize that we fall short. We put things at the center of our lives that aren't you. And so we confess those things. We turn from those things now and turn to Christ who's paid our price. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 7, it says this, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. This is different from the tabernacle. We know this because God wanted the tabernacle at the center, and when the tabernacle is built, it is built at the center. This is separate. This is Moses' own tent that was on the outside of the camp. Verse 8, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from his tent. What's going on here in verses 7 through 11? Actually, scholars believe this was a mistake because uh, we're waiting with this anticipation like we are at Advent for the coming of Christ uh, on this side of the resurrection for the second coming of Christ. But there's this weird pause. There's this, there's this interaction where, where God says, I'm not going with you. The people repent, and now it's like there's this pause in the story. And, and scholars say that it was misplaced. Don't believe that. I believe it was by the sovereignty of God. There's this anticipation in the story of like what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. But we also get a picture of the friendship of God, the friendship of Emmanuel, the friendship that Moses has with Emmanuel. It's this beautiful picture of communion and a friendship that God has with His chosen one. I can't read this section and I can't think about this section without thinking about John 15.15. So in in, uh, Egypt, they had a master and his name was Pharaoh. But they didn't know ever what, the, what that master was doing. He was, he, he was a horrible, cruel, evil, and oppressive master. And, 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 and now, God is, God is talking with, as a friend, to Moses. He's talking to him face to face. He's talking to him. He's having a conversation with him. He's telling about what's going on. We actually get a look now of, of, of what the conversation is that God is having with Moses. But I think of John 15, 15. And what Jesus says, he says, no longer do I call you servants, doulos, which is slave. No longer do I call you a slave. I, I have to think that, that, that Jesus in this was thinking of the Exodus account. No longer do I call you slaves, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. 
but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, we in Christ get to take the place of Moses. We get to talk to God as a friend. We get to talk to God as he did. We get to interact to God uh, w- with God. Emmanuel's presence becomes friendship to us like it was for Moses. Moses knew what was going on with God. And, 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 and Jesus would say, as, as Moses was not like someone under Pharaoh, so neither are you a slave who doesn't know what's going on. Instead, Jesus says, I call you friend. We have to see and understand that God's presence gives us peace and rest because what God's presence gives us is a friendship. And yes, we need to understand God as holy, but we also need to grow in understanding God as friend. I've told uh, a group of friends the other night that, that I have understood the gospel, the good news to be that, 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 that Christ removes my sin, that He gives me uh, forgiveness, that He gives me His righteousness, and He justifies me before God. But oftentimes the way that I have viewed the gospel is that Jesus comes in the courtroom, says whatever punishment he deserves, give that, give that to me and let him go free. And I don't understand that what I actually get and what the fullness of the gospel is, is a relationship and a friendship with Jesus where he was with me at all times. Yes, we get forgiveness. Yes, we get righteousness. Yes, we are made pure and holy and complete. But what we get is a friendship with Jesus Christ. Someone who knew and understand this Friendship well was a man named Joseph Scriven. See, Joseph Scriven was an Irishman who, after graduating college, went on to be a great teacher. And he met a young woman who he was set to marry the next day. And they were meeting at this little spot along the stream to meet, to talk, and to hang out. But when Joseph Scriven arrived there, he noticed a group of people carrying his bride-to-be out of the water. You see, she was thrown from her horse and she struck her head on a rock in the stream and drowned to death. And his heart was grieved, obviously, by what happened. And so he moved to Canada where he was known as the Good Samaritan in Canada. In fact, one guy said, you see that guy over there? That's a guy who's happy with a lot that God has given him in life. And he said, I think I'm going to hire him to do some work. And the other guy said, you're not going to hire Joseph Scriven because he only works for people that cannot pay him. Later on, he met another woman and he was set to marry her. And weeks out from their marriage, she got deathly sick and she passed away. Met again with grief. He continued on and said that he was going to commit his life to poverty and serving the Lord. Ten years later, he received word that his mother was sick and she was going to be dying soon, but he didn't have the money to fly to see his mom, and he said that his soul was stricken with grief, as anyone would be. Joseph Scriven at that time said these words that were now written to a hymn that some of you might know. The one thing that he found that gave him peace inside of a time of such turmoil was these words. What a friend we have in Jesus. He says, all our sins and griefs to bear, and what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. The one thing that gave him peace and rest was knowing the friendship that he had with Jesus, that that, that everything we bear, all of our sins and griefs, that we can carry it to God in prayer. We can talk to him. He said, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. 
He says, have we uh, trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Closes with this. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. God's presence, Emmanuel, and His friendship is the one thing in the midst of death, crisis, turmoil, everything that's going on in our life. It's not the removal of something. It's His presence and His friendship that gives us peace like it did for Joseph Scriven, and it gives him rest. Let's read verse 12 through 17. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. What's going on? Is Moses is just simply saying, hey, you're telling me bring up this people, but you haven't even told me who, you, who, 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 who you're sending with us. You've just said an angel. Yet you've told me that I have favor in your sight. I have found grace in your eyes. That's what it means. I have found grace in your eyes. Verse 13. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. Look at him. He's pleading for the nation of Israel. Verse 14. And look at what God says to him here. This is what God says. He said in verse 15. And he said to him, I'm sorry, this is still Moses speaking. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So th this is what Moses says. If you're not going with us, then leave us here to die. Because we would rather stay here and cease to exist and go without your presence. They don't want to go. The Israelites don't want to go. Moses doesn't want to go. And so he says the very thing that makes us special, that makes us distinct, the only way we will survive as such a small and tiny nation inside of such a cruel world surrounded by these other nations is only if you go with us. The only thing that gives us this meaning and this distinctness is Emmanuel. Is your presence with us, God? What's, what's interesting is it seems like Moses is not paying attention. Because look at this. In verse 14, God says, and He said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. So God says, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And, and look at 15. And He said to him, If your presence will not go with Me, do not bring us up from here. He was being a very intentional listener. God said, I will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses is like, nope. If I have found favor in your eyes and I'm pleading on behalf of the nation of Israel, if I am your son who you are well pleased with, then save them and spare them. He was listening very well. He was understanding that God said that I will go with you, Moses, because you're the one who's found favor in my sight. And Moses said, no, 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 no. I'm not going unless you take the nation of Israel and your presence goes with all of us and you give us rest. What was Moses doing? He was praying on behalf of Israel. He was being their mediator. What we have to see from this text, what we have to understand is this, is Israel is not saved by their own merits. They're stiff-necked. Israel is saved by the merits of their mediator, Moses. 
pleading and praying on their behalf. Because we see, look at verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God knows everyone by name. This is, this is an intimate knowledge of Moses. So the nation of Israel is saved because their mediator is pleading for them. Pleading for God's presence to save them, to spare them. And we would have to know this, that centuries later, another man named Jesus Christ stepped on the scene and he was baptized. And when he came out of the water, what did God say? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Those were God's words to his son. At the end of Jesus' life, what does he do? He's the mediator pleading to God on our behalf saying, God, forgive them for they don't know what they do. His, his, his plea from the cross is crush me and spare them. And so we are not saved by our own merits. We are saved because the one that truly found full favor and acceptance in God's eyes pled for us and said, God, in a sense, the way you've accepted me, the way you are pleased with me, I'm asking that you would accept them and be pleased with them. So in Christ, when we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done, did you know that God looks at you and says, this is my child with whom I'm well pleased? Because we are one with Christ. We are hidden in Christ. There there actually should be nothing more that gives your soul greater peace than this. To know that the God of the universe, who you were once enemies with because of your sin, you are now at peace with because of what Christ has done. And he says, you're my child with whom I am well pleased. When I was born, I had one enemy, God. When, 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 When Christ saved me, I, I, we, we, we as Christians, we as saints have many enemies because God has many enemies. But the one person who is on our side is the one who's reigned victorious over all the enemies. And he says, this is my child with whom I'm well pleased. I've reigned victorious through the life, death, and resurrection of my son. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Yes, you are pressed. Yes, you have enemies. But just know that I have overtaken them and I am yours and you are mine. The gospel gives us forgiveness. It gives us righteousness. But what it gives us is it gives us God. His friendship. His presence. And His presence with us is the very reminder that He loves us and in His eyes He is well pleased. What does this presence mean for us in daily life? Here's what it means. We'll close here. God is in control of everything and every part of your life. The small, the big, the intricate, the details. God is sovereign and He's in control. And He's present at all times. He is with us. He is for us. Meaning that whatever is going on in your life is not removed from God. He's with you. And His presence gives you rest, gives you peace. This also means that He is holding us through everything that is going on currently in our lives right now. This also means since Jesus' work is sufficient and it's finished, that I can rest and run to God as a friend whenever I want, daily. But what this really, 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 really means for you is this, is that your soul doesn't need just absence from anything. What what, What your actual need is, is your soul needs the presence of your Savior to actually have rest. Have you tried watching Netflix all day? Have you tried just resting from everything? There's a difference from resting from everything versus resting in Jesus. What you need is the Savior of your soul to hold you, to minister to you, to heal you, to revive you, and to love you as He says He will do, as as He says in Psalm 23. We need that. 
What we need is, is, is Emmanuel, our friend that we can run to. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite the band to come up now. And I, I would encourage you guys to do this. Maybe it's been a while since you talked to God as a friend. Maybe it's been a while since you've understood that God's presence gives you peace and rest. Maybe there's so much turmoil going on in your life that you could listen to the words of Joseph Scriven and say, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Take this time before you get up, before you rush to communion, before you rush to sit back down, before you do anything. Maybe take the whole song. Just sit and be and talk to God as your friend. Know that Emmanuel is with you, and if he is with you, that means that he loves you. And with him, he is uh, uh, you in his eyes. And, and in his eyes, he is well pleased with you. Know that. Sit in that. Just be with that for just a moment. I would encourage you. And our response to all of this is that we mediate for others like Jesus Christ mediated for us. That we stand in the middle because there's a world that is restless and the only peace and rest that is true rest and peace is found in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our presence, your presence, Emmanuel, that you are with us. Just like you were with Moses, just like you were with the nation of Israel, you are with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you have come and that we have a friendship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.